welcome to the Business Brainwave Show with Renata Jute, where we will look at ways to optimize your business. So, September month is Trust Month at Noble Prosperity, and I'm so excited to introduce and bring to you Fear Funder Spey from Trustees as my guest. I didn't uh, interview with Fear that stretched uh, over quite a period of time, and uh, I then broke up that interview into several uh, smaller podcasts, and I will be bringing those podcasts to you during the month of September. So if you are interested in all things trusts, and you want to know how trusts are affected by the taxes and the law and what the master has to say about trusts, then stick around. Make sure that you pick up on all the podcasts during the month of September where Fear Funder Spay from Trustees will be my guest. Right. Okay, so now that we've got a better understanding on tax deductible expenses, let's look at who pays the tax. So, when we want to look at who will pay the tax, um, Fia, and we can have a very long discussion about this, it's a matter of, well, how did the resultant asset, the, the entity causing the tax liability, how did that asset get into the trust? if we want to yes. look at it in layman's terms. So if okay. it is a property that has a rental income and as a result of the rental income, we now have a tax liability, the question is, well, how did the property get there? If it is an investment portfolio resulting in capital gains tax or interest received, dividends wouldn't be such a problem. How did the investment portfolio get into the trust? So, and we've had many, many discussions over many, many years of these things, but Let's have a robust discussion on this. Over to you. Yes. yes. Again, I think because trusts are so unique, a blind or blanket statement that trusts are the highest tax-paying entity in South Africa is absolutely not correct. Why I'm saying that is a trust is the taxpayer of last resort, which means after everybody else that we could possibly tax if none of those people are taxed, only in that event, the trust is taxed then at the higher flat rate um, that applies to individuals. So your very starting point is, is exactly what Renata is saying. When we look at a trust, SARS wants to know how did this asset get into the trust? And it's also important to actually explain you know, where this came about because those are the general Section 7 anti-avoidance provisions, which have been in our Income Tax Act for many, many years. You know, as far back as 1914, some of these provisions were introduced. And that's typically where SARS, in those years, funny enough, the net effective tax rate of trusts were lower than that of individuals. So that's why SARS, that's why SARS introduced those anti-avoidance provisions, because what did the, the uh, estate planners do? They moved all their personal assets into a trust for the trust to pay tax at the lower effective rate uh, compared to individuals. And those years, Section 7C wasn't around, so they just left it on interest-free loan account. So there was absolutely no tax effect on the estate planner to move those assets into the trust for it to pay lower tax. 
and then we all know that the, the estate planners anyway use that trust assets as if they were their own. So it absolutely made no difference. So what happened later years, um, uh, trust actually started paying more tax than individuals. So um, those anti-avoidance provisions, funny enough, can now be applied to the benefit of the taxpayer because we can now impute the higher uh, taxable income back to the, um, it's always the funder and, or the donor. So uh, a lot of people confuse the Section 7C anti-avoidance provisions with, you know, this was um, the founder of the trust. It's mm. got absolutely nothing to do with who actually established the trust. It's who moved the asset into the trust. And obviously in the old days, it was always connected persons, which is very, very um, relevant for trust because connected persons, SARS, you know, want to, uh, to put the magnifying glass on all those transactions because there's always non-market um, transaction terms typically associated with these transactions. So um, just quickly, as far as connected persons are concerned, um, obviously the starting point uh, with trust is a beneficiary is a connected person to the trust because that is the person who can benefit from the trust, right? And then SARS, you know, uh, makes that definition quite wide. So any um, spouse, any child, any um, business partner, any family member, you know, kind of, you know, to like the third degree, you know, all those people are connected persons in relation to the trust. And any one of those doing transactions with the trust at non-arms linked terms, especially as far as moving assets into the trust, typically on interest-free loan basis or a donation, all the income that uh, results from that uh, donation uh, gets imputed back to the donor. And if uh, it's on interest-free loan, you have to do a calculation where you assume a market-related interest rate was charged. And that is actually the benefit that the trust got by receiving that interest-free loan. So you do an annual calculation. So it's quite complicated because it's not the actual, it's based on the interest or the income that that asset generated in the trust but limited to that when you actually do your, um, you do your calculation of the notional interest that you should have charged on, on, um, on that uh, interest-free loan, or you know, even if it's a low interest loan. So any soft loan that's uh, carrying uh, interest below a market-related interest rate, that's specifically for the normal Section 7 anti-wellness provisions. So anybody who pushed their assets into a trust mm -hmm. on a loan basis below market-related rate or donated those assets, all that income or the notional amount comes back to your, your um, personal tax calculation. And as I said, that could be used to advantage. So better have accurate uh, records because most often the accountants don't have accurate records they don't know there's some loan left it's a combined loan of different assets they cannot um you know actually perform a calculation to make use of this tax advantage now um and uh, without records we've seen you know sources objectives you have to have your ducks in a row so the 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 more pure and accurate your accounting records is now we can actually use as I said, the assets that generate higher income and impute those um, income back to the funder 
and to the extent that the loan has been repaid, you know, leave the lower income generating um, assets and don't impute those. So you can see you can use it as a planning tool now. So first step is how did assets get into the trust? That may lead to imputing uh, all or some of the income back to the donor or funder, right? After we've done that, and there's still income left in the trust, then the trustees, and I want to emphasize this, before the end of that financial year, not after the year end, not when the accountant is busy finalizing the tax or the, the accounts, and we now you know, want to empty out the trust so it doesn't pay uh, tax at the higher rate, and now we're going to make distributions to beneficiaries. Those decisions and the distribution has to be made before the end of the financial year. Again, you need very accurate records. Which board of trustees have got accurate records that they can sit before the end of that financial year and actually declare income uh, to the different beneficiaries to actually make use of this advantage to actually distribute income to the beneficiaries. And why am I calling it a, 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 an advantage is um, we know that individuals pay tax on a sliding scale. Their top rate at the moment is also 45% similar to the taxes, uh, the trust uh, uh, flat rate of 45%. So by distributing, you know, income or capital gains to a beneficiary, you know, they may capitalize on, you know, being on the sliding scale and obviously may earn um, much lower than, you know, hitting that marginal tax rate of 45%. Uh, a unique principle also uh, relevant for trust is, apart from the fact that we can make use of the conduit principle, and so by the way, the, the Davis Tax Committee tried their utmost to, to actually um, yeah. take away or attack the conduit principle, and, uh, you know, haven't been successful to do that. So I think we are, for now, pretty safe. Um, so... Apart from the ability to use the conduit principle that's unique to trust, we can also now split the income between different beneficiaries. Because we've got the sliding scale, if you have five children, none of them pay tax, you can register them for tax and you can distribute income to them uh, to actually pay their school fees. So they call that income splitting. Yep. So we can use income splitting to capitalize even further by making sure we distribute, you know, you can distribute enough. Um, you know, I, I think the, the threshold is now um, in the 80,000s, 80, 85,000 or something for, um, for uh, beneficiaries before they pay tax. Mm. So you can see how many children you can actually distribute the, the 80,000 to before you, you start paying a cent. That is available to use. I think you need to, to apply it correctly and you need to be able to demonstrate that you followed the correct uh, procedures, but that is available to trusts. So, if, so we, if we look at an example of how this would work, is yeah. for instance, uh, let's use the example again of property. Um, if we have uh, properties, various properties in the trust, but we purchase these properties by means of bonds, and these properties have been paid off over periods of time, which means how did the property get to the trust? The trust purchased its own asset. What does that mean? It means that there's now no conduit principle that hits that income back to the donor, because there was no one, there was no funder other than the trust itself. So it means at this point, the trustees of that trust can now dictate and decide with their uh, very important resolutions, 
who needs to pay the tax. And this is where we can then say, we now want to split that income. Now, of course, when you want to move the income, you need to move the relevant expenses that goes with that particular income stream. So if I am, for instance, in this case, let's say we realize that we will land up with, for argument's sake, a 200,000 rand profit in the trust after income and expenses, we've got a 200,000 rand profit. And this would result in a 45% tax on the 200,000 in the trust. What the trustees can now do before the year end. And this is if you are doing your accounting up to date all the time, you will be very well aware in advance of this problem. You can then sit and say, how are we splitting this income? We want to split the income and the relevant expenses to the various beneficiaries so that this 200 profit will then inevitably land up with the various beneficiaries, resulting in the trust not carrying the 45% tax. And it may then land with a beneficiary that is either on the 18% or below tax, um, or it may even land up with a beneficiary that's currently, as a result of this income, it may push them up to a 31% tax. It is still a very different uh, scenario than that of 45. Also, where this becomes a, a great uh, tool is when you dispose of an asset and you now have a capital gain. Again, important to note who was the funder of the asset. Again, if the trust purchased the asset and we don't have a gain having to go back to the original funder, we can distribute the gain. I'm always mindful of this, though, because it doesn't help we remove gains from the trust and build um, wealth in our personal names if we intend building wealth, if we intend remaining in the country. For me, that would generally be a let's do that when people are disposing of assets because they are leaving the country. For me, that then makes sense. Strip the assets out of the trust. But if they're disposing of an asset to maybe grow the asset value in the trust, you need to do careful planning to decide whether you will be distributing the gain to the beneficiaries or paying the taxes in the trust. What's your view on that, Fia? I think you make a very important point. It's not always just about tax, immediate tax, let me say yes. that. Because uh, what Renato said, the moment you make that distribution, whether it's income or capital gain, and um, it's, not, it's not paid out to the person, you must understand that that amount payable to the beneficiary as a result of that distribution becomes an asset in the beneficiary's personal estate. That means that that asset or that distribution payable is now exposed to the beneficiary's creditors, first of all. So you lose that protection that you had in the trust. And um, obviously, if a beneficiary gets sequestrated or liquidated, a creditor can actually step into the shoes. However, you know, the courts have made it clear that creditors wouldn't get any better rights. So, for example, if the trustees made a distribution, and that distribution is payable to the beneficiaries, um, and they have not paid it out yet, and the beneficiary gets sequestrated, liquidated, um, the, the creditors can't demand payment of that uh, distribution. So at least they wouldn't get better rights. However, you may actually use that estate planning uh, benefit of asset protection um, in a trust. So that's the first issue we have. Mm. Second issue is you are postponing your pain. 
So on, upon your death, um, even though you've paid uh, much less tax, you must understand that that asset, that amount distributable or payable to you is an asset in your estate. So it's going to attract estate duty. It's going to attract executor's fees. Any income, um, uh, and, uh, you know, it gets quite complicated, but a lot of the trustees get it wrong. You cannot, you know, future income and future capital gains, you can't keep that for the trust site. At the moment, it's vested. It's unconditional. So any income or capital gains resulting from that distribution that you retained in the trust must also accrue to the beneficiary. You have to account for it properly. So that just, you know, um, increases that asset even further in your personal capacity. Um, and, uh, you know, so the taxes upon your death is going to be, you know, quite high because of that asset that sits in your personal name now. And then you've lost the whole asset protection uh, benefits of, um, you know, keeping for a family in perpetuity. Um, because the moment that asset, you know, that asset can be bequeathed to, to whoever the beneficiary want to bequeath it to. I think you lose control and, you know, the, the advantage of the benefit for kind of um, uh, generational planning. Um, Agreed. So it's just important to realize the implications of, you know, capitalizing on this benefit of paying less tax right now doesn't yeah. mean that's that's a permanent benefit it's a i'm calling it a timing timing benefit mm -hmm. but it's going to hit you harder later and you know with where we are with COVID now people starting businesses mm -hmm. be very mindful if you get sequestrated um and you know that asset may be lost to the entire family so that is for me it was always very important that you cannot just look at the here and now. The reason one would have started trusts and um, spent the time, the energy, the money setting up these structures would be not only for asset protection, but for estate planning and for legacy, leaving a legacy. And you can undermine the whole concept of that by making a very short-sighted knee-jerk reaction of let me pay less tax and then of course there's also where I think sometimes it's not always thought through when I have several beneficiaries but let's say for instance as we now have we now have scattered families that live all over the world if I now want to distribute to a offshore beneficiary I end up paying the tax in the trust anyway so I'm, I'm paying the tax in the trust if I'm distributing to an offshore beneficiary because SARS wants their tax. And if I'm giving it to a non-taxpayer, SARS goes not so fast. They want their money. And now I distribute it. But the problem is, where does this beneficiary reside? Because in certain countries, if you now give the beneficiary that benefit, they may be taxed on that money again, depending on which country they live in. And if you're not very clued up with whichever country's tax uh, regimes, you can actually result a far worse situation. So be very mindful. So going full circle with, have we really got an answer on who pays the tax, which was the initial question? The, uh, the short answer is, how did the asset get to the trust? Because mm -hmm. that will be the first dictation. Mm -hmm. Second is then if section seven does not apply, remember as Fia said, it's literally if the trust is the last man standing, then the trust makes the decision. Then we've got section 25 and 25B says, whichever beneficiary gets the benefit would then pay the taxes. And there are certain section seven, I mean, sorry, section 25Bs 
various different ones that will say either the beneficiary pay or if they're an offshore beneficiary, then the trust pays. Or if there's a, uh, if you can revoke the right, then the trust would pay. So again, you have to look at the various sections. But the first stop would be, how did the asset get to the trust? That's section seven. If section seven doesn't apply, in other words, the trust bought its own asset, then we start looking at section 25. In other words, are we giving the benefit out to beneficiaries? And if not, then last man standing, the trust would pay the tax. So there we go. A long, uh, drawn-out story on who pays the tax. Thanks for listening to this episode of Business Brainwaves. For more Business Brainwaves, please visit my website, nobleprosperity.co.za, follow me on Facebook, or connect with me on LinkedIn. For easy access, the links are posted below.